mentioned, my name is Nathan Gerkins, and I'm here with my wife, Laura. And uh, I was a, a part of the, the CLC team for a, a quite a while, just right out of college, first couple years after I graduated. This was my church home. This was my family. And it is honestly really exciting and so much fun to be back and see familiar faces and new faces and to sing some of the same songs that we got to sing way back in the day. So thank you so much for having me. This is, this is wonderful. Um, so I'm just going to get right into it. We're in the series right now that Josh has been preaching about called Lullaby. And it's about this, this concept that, that Josh has been talking about where there's this um, the apocalyptic language that he and Christy first used when they were setting up the series, that there's something called Babylon, that there's this culture of the world that seeks to draw us away from God, that there's something inside of us that kind of resonates with that, and we s want to slip into complacency, and we slip into compromise, and we are lulled away by this, by this temptation to not take God as seriously as we ought, or to live life in a way that we know might be sort of wrong on the inside, but it seems like the more comfortable, well-worn, well-trodden path for us to live in. <coughs> and there's, um, it, it, we almost get to the point where we think, well, perhaps God is not the person that we, we think he is, or, or maybe he is exactly who we want him to be. Maybe this, this idea that God doesn't care too much about sin, maybe there, there could be some truth to that. Like the severity that the Bible puts forth, it's so strong, it's so bold, that, you know, it's like there's got to be a middle ground somewhere. There's got to be something that I'm missing here because it couldn't always be that strong and that, that powerful. And so maybe, you know, maybe there is a little bit of room here to slip into something that's a little bit maybe off, off of what I know is completely right. But, but maybe that could be okay, right? And that's the lullaby. It's that, that draw away from, the, from an absolute, from what God puts forth as the right and the moral way to live. <clears throat> and the thing is about that lullaby is that it becomes more enticing to us when we start listening to who Babylon says or the culture says or our own hearts will tend to say who God actually is. The lullaby isn't, it, it doesn't necessarily say outright like, oh, you know, God isn't real. And so you can just ignore all of that. And it, it doesn't necessarily say, like, there's no such thing as right or wrong or pure evil or pure good. It's, it's not so, it's so bold-faced, perhaps. That's not necessarily something that we're just going to go right along with. Because there's something within us that admits, like, yes, there is some right. There is some wrong. And there seem to be shades of gray on the in-between. <coughs> but, but maybe, but maybe the lullaby is saying, well, God isn't necessarily everything that we, we think that he is or that he says that he is in the Bible. Maybe he's, um, <clears throat> maybe he's a little bit different than that. Maybe there's some, some compromise that can be made. And that's, that's what I want to talk about this morning, is I want to talk about the fact that when the lullaby starts to tell us who God is, rather than us understanding who he actually is, we become far more easily enticed and ensnared by it. And so understanding who God is is crucial to escaping the lullaby, if you will. And that's where I want to eventually take us this morning as well, is how do we wake up from the lullaby? How do we get out of it in the first place? <clears throat> so we'll be, we'll be hopping around a little bit in the Bible. We're actually all in the Old Testament this morning. I was going through the verses, I was like, holy cow, we're all in the, the Old Testament. It's kind of unusual. But I'm going to keep the verses up on the screen so, so you can follow around, follow along. But 
what I'm going to cover is the importance of understanding who God is. I want to take most of the time to talk about perhaps the most important characteristic of how God describes himself to us, and then how that right understanding of God is the first step to waking up from the lullaby. And I'm going to cover that in six easy steps. All right? I should, six simple steps. I don't, don't quote me that saying that they're easy. Okay? So we're going to start off in Genesis. Way back at the very beginning of the Bible, when this idea of Babylon and this idea of the lullaby is first on display in the Garden of Eden. So Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to be taken from the ESV version, so yours, depending on if you're NIV, KGV, uh, ABC, whatever you're using might look a little different, but I think we should have that up on the screen. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, now listen to the lullaby. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, so the serpent, which is kind of the, the, the picture or the representation of, of Satan, of deceit, of Babylon, start, it comes to Eve and just like, okay, I want to lure her away from God. How am I going to do that? He first says, well, did God actually say this? Questioning absolute truth. And she's like, nope, that, that tactic didn't work. And she's like, nope, she has perfect recollection. She understood exactly what God said. He's like, okay, shoot, what's another route that I can take? Well, now he goes, and in verse 4, he starts to question her understanding of who God actually is. He starts to call doubt into that perspective that she has. We can trace the lullaby all the way back to this original sin. It started day one from when sin entered the world is when the lullaby started to play. And it began with Eve being tempted into believing something about God that was ultimately not true. Notice Satan, Satan the serpent didn't say like, oh, no, 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 he didn't say that at all. Bold-faced lie, denying reality. No, no, no. He went with the tactic to say, well, well, perhaps God isn't exactly who you thought he was. Like, you thought that he was doing that for your own good because he knew that's what would be best for you. Mm, but in reality, there's more to the picture. Like, God isn't actually as good as you thought that he was. He's actually holding out on you just a little bit. And there's something that you're missing here that once you have the full truth of who God is, well, now it becomes a lot more easy to compromise that command that God said because his character, she was, she was tempted into believing that his character was actually somewhat flawed. And as soon as that switch occurred in her mind, she was ready and primed to compromise the one rule in the Garden of Eden. Like, per, they, she had perfection. She and Adam were in paradise they had one rule to follow, and yet they were lulled away into sin by starting to believe something about God that wasn't true. And, and it's interesting that there's always this subtractive element to the lullaby. When it starts to deceive us about who God is, it's, it's always something that ultimately is subtractive. Like the serpent is saying like, hey, actually there's more to the story because there's more that you don't know about God. But in reality, the lullaby was subtracting from who God is. The lullaby says, well, no, God isn't all that he says that he is. 
that he's not all that he's cracked up to be. He's not as good. He's not as caring. He's not as kind. He's not as patient. It subtracts from the identity of God and brings into question his character so that we are more tempted and more enticed to slip into sin. And it becomes easy for us to think that God is perhaps comp- uh, uh, temperamental or he's, um, I have this word, capricious. I have that one written down. Or petty or, you know, uh, 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 critical, overly critical. But what we end up doing is we, we might take experiences from our life where we have an authority figure or a, a loved one or a friend or a boss or a coworker who is a certain way. And then when we see words in the Bible that are like wrathful or judgmental, that are difficult for us to process, we might take those experiences and we pin them onto God and we start to subtract from his character rather than understanding those characteristics in light of who he really is. Does that, does that make sense? Are you following me here? Okay, I use the word capricious, and I should have had a definition in here for that. So in the, in the words of the philosopher Voltaire, you know, always a good guy to quote on Sunday morning, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. And so the Bible is, is full of these vivid descriptions of God, okay? It says that he's revealed in nature, that he's powerful, that he's mighty, that he's loving, he is wrathful, and he is judgmental, all of these things. And if we come to those with the preconceived notions of our own experiences to try to build up this identity of God, then we are going to start to be led astray by this lullaby that wants us to think that God is less than who he really is. But there's one characteristic about God that we absolutely must with no exception, understand about God if we are to understand who he is in his fullness and all of those other ways that the Bible describes him. So what is God actually like? What's he like? That's a a big question. We can actually put that up on the screen so you guys can just kind of stare at it for a second. The the Bible is, is full of these descriptions. It tells us that God can be seen in creation, that he can be seen in nature, that when we look outside, there's some element or there's some identity of God that, is, that can be found in nature, in his creation, in the stars in the sky. It even says in the Bible that we ourselves are, in a sense, a characteristic or a, a revelation of God's identity. It says that we were made in his image. And so when we look in the mirror, when we look at the people next to us and sitting beside us and driving beside us on the freeway, we are looking at an image of God, a representation if you will, not that they are God by any stretch, but that there is something there that communicates to us who God is. And frankly, this topic, I mean, it's, it's one of my favorites to talk about. We could spend hours, days, or weeks, but I know the Super Bowl is coming up, and so we'll try to get you out of here earlier than that. But what I want to focus on, again, we're, we're, we're Old Testament this morning. We're going back. Um, we're going to look at how God described himself to the people of Israel way back toward the very beginning of the Bible, when the nation of Israel was first coming onto the scene. So, um, uh, Trevor, if you want to put Leviticus 11, 44, and 45 up on the screen. <clears throat> so this is God talking to the children of Israel, and he says this, for I, am, excuse me, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. 
And then, again, in uh, a few chapters later, Leviticus 19. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. All right, now, the context of this passage here is Israel has just come out of uh, the the land of uh, Egypt, where they were in captivity for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's like this fast-paced sequence of events where you had uh, Moses in the desert in the burning bush, and then you had the children of Israel. There were the, the ten plagues in the land of Egypt, and then they escaped Egypt. And then there was the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea, and they brought them through it. And then there was a, they were in the desert, and there was famine and starvation, and God fed them, and he gave them water. And now we're kind of like 25 minutes into an action movie where like the car chase is over, and they're on their way back from like Berlin or Moscow or wherever they were at, and you can finally like get to know the characters a little bit. You're like, okay, what is this guy's name again? It's like, what is this girl doing here? Like, that's where we're at in the Bible at this point. The nation of Israel is kind of like, okay, we're out of Egypt. There's this God who has promised things to our ancestors hundreds of years ago, but now he's finally, like, talking to us for the first time, and he's telling us what he's like. And these are the words that he uses to describe himself for the very first time to the people of Israel. And the most important thing that God decided that the Israelites should understand about him isn't that he's loving or that he's kind or that he's powerful. No, the most important thing is that they have to understand that he is holy. That's the number one characteristic that they were to understand coming right out of the gate. It says it like four times in these two passages. And then beyond that, there's also a call to action as a result of that. Like, I'm holy, but also that means something for you too, that you have to be holy also. So whatever this characteristic about God is, it kind of rebounds and kind of bounces off him and sticks to us. There's something that we have to do as well. It's not just like, okay, God's holy and that's cool, and then we're going to be off doing our own thing over here. Like, no, I am holy, so therefore you must be holy as well. So whatever this holiness thing is, is extremely important for us to understand, not just to understand God, but also to understand ourselves in relation to God. So what do we do when we find a new word that we don't know the definition of, like capricious maybe? We start by going to Webster's Dictionary, great place to start. So this is what, what Webster's says. It says that the definition of holiness is exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. That's quite a, quite a, quite a mouthful. So in, in the, uh, the Old Testament here was written in the, uh, the original language was Aramaic. And in that definition, which I totally spaced on putting up on the screen here, there's also this element of like, well, holiness is something that's worthy of complete devotion, perfect in goodness, but also something that is like separate. Like you have stuff over here, but then all the holy stuff is kind of like over here. It's off on its own. It's kind of in a separate category, if you will. And that, that kind of resonates with us. When we say like, uh, like that something is truly holy, it's like this, this element of like sacredness, that it's different from the rest in a better way. And so in order to understand this word, I want to present it to you, this idea of holiness in two dimensions. And so I'm going to go back to uh, like middle school math here. We're going to get out a graph. So Trevor, if you want to put the graph up on the screen. Oops, that's not a graph. We'll get to that later. Do I have that first instead of the graph? Can we go to the graph? Hey, there we go. There's the graph. Um, I didn't study graphic design, but that looks like a graph to me. 
So I want to talk about holiness in two separate dimensions, if you will. So there's separateness and there's sacredness. And we're going to hit the separateness aspect first. So this one is a little bit easier to understand. It means that there is some like lateral aspect of holiness where something that is holy is inherently different. It's, it's separate a little bit, kind of like the phrase comparing apples and oranges, right? You can't compare apples and oranges because they're inherently different. And so drawing comparisons between the two start to break down over a bit. The, the separateness of God in his holiness means that our normal reference frames will, will start to break down a bit when we consider who God is and what he's like. If we start to draw parallels between what we think of God and who he's actually like, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to static out. It's going to fuzz out a little bit. It's going to get gray and fuzzy because he's, so, he's, he's different and separate. And so therefore, we can't draw conclusions and parallels quite in the same way. We, we can, and we often do, but at some point, we have to understand that those will break down. There are no perfect synonyms. There are no perfect, um, oh, what's the other word for synonym? <laughs> Ironic, right? I can't remember it. <laughs> um, so this isn't to say that we, when we talk about God, we just say like, okay, I'm going to turn my brain off and I'm just going to kind of accept everything that I hear at face value. That's not what it is. It's more of that understanding that at some point you're, you're just going to lose like the understanding. There's, there's going to be a point where our reference frames will break down. And so this is where I want to go back to that chemistry picture. I want to take a look at quantum physics for a quick second. So, oh, yeah. All right. Middle school chemistry. Here we go. So this is the Bohr. I'm going to go over here so I can point. So this is the Bohr model of the atom. All right. So back when atoms were first, like, discovered, people thought that they were kind of like planets, that you had protons and neutrons in the nucleus of the atom and the electrons that balance out the charge of that atom would circulate around like planets, right? Easy to understand. We all kind of have seen a planetarium or a mobile over a crib somewhere. So we can imagine like an electron orbiting around the center nucleus of planets like the Earth and Moon. Easy peasy. Well, um, once you get to like high school chemistry, they kind of pull a sneaky on you and they start talking about, if you go to the next slide, Electron orbitals. Um, so what happens is electrons do this weird thing where when you're at such small distances and lengths and sizes and mass of an electron that you can't actually figure out where that electron is at any point. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that you can't know something's exact location and velocity at any given point. And so we have to represent the location of the electrons in these blue and red spheres that represent statistical probabilities for where the electrons could be at any point. And I've lost about 30% of you, so I'll keep going. And uh, so with that, then it's theoretically possible for an electron to occupy two physical spaces at the same time. I have one person nodding, so I'm going to keep going. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. This is all I know, so please don't talk to me afterward about this. It will be embarrassing for both of us. But right, like at some point, that nice, pretty picture of the electrons orbiting and going around like a planet, it's like, no, at some point it breaks down and we get into statistics, we get to these orbital things, and it works. If you're in middle school, like, like yeah, it works to get a basic understanding, but this, the further you probe and the more powerful your microscope is, the more that we have to just say like, oh, okay, man, like, like something's going on. Um, and there's definitely electrons, I'll tell you that. But, but geez, what? Like, huh? And that's, that's what the separateness of God is kind of like. It's a little bit like quantum physics, where we can understand it to a point, 
But at some point, we just have to say like, okay, I know that there's electrons, okay? I know that God is loving, and I know that he's kind and all these things, but it's a little hard to wrap my head around here. And those, those differences between us, the, the Bible talks about them a lot. For example, he is spirit, and we are physical. We live in a three-dimensional world, and we have physical bodies. He is fully spiritual. He's not bound by three dimensions. He's not bound by the fourth dimension either. We live in time. Like, just a little bit ago, I was talking about the word capricious, and now I'm not. But he sees all of it as if it's one continuous stream. Like, he, he jumps in and out. Like, I can't even create a, 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 uh, a synonym for it because it's so different from our experience. He is omnipotent. He is powerful and can do anything. We are limited in our ability to influence the world around us. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And we, our, our knowledge is incredibly limited to the world around us and even with ourselves. Like there's so many ways in which he is fundamentally different than us that his holiness means that those reference frames are going to break down at some point. We can understand him to a point, but we also will never be able to fully comprehend him, if that makes sense. And I want to be clear here, before we move on, being holy, God's holiness, doesn't mean that he is unknowable, right? It means that he could be unknowable if he wanted to be. I, like, there was this, um, like, this old story, like, written in the 1800s called Flatlanders, and it was like this, this kind of uh, philosophical probe into like the human's ability to understand things that are greater than them. And it imagined this world of two-dimensional cr uh, uh, creatures and people living on a two-dimensional like sheet of paper universe. And their inability to comprehend a three-dimensional being that would pass through. I'm getting one person nodding, so I'm going to keep going. And like all that they would see is just like these slices, like these two-dimensional slices of a three-dimensional person. And it's like, you're... Yeah, you're kind of seeing them, but you're kind of not also. And that's what it's like. Like, if God wanted to, he could be completely removed from us. He could go off into, like, the outer reaches of space and just be totally separate, totally removed from us. And we could search and we'd be in the dark all our life until the sun went cold. But the thing is that just because he is holy doesn't mean that he is unknowable. It just means that when he talks about himself to us, that is the most important and the most fundamental way for us to understand him. Because the conclusions that we draw will start to break down unless he himself informed us of what he's like. Does that make sense? Like if electrons could talk, we would understand this stuff way better, okay? We'd have like everyone nodding along. Because like, oh yeah, the electron told me that. It's over there. I don't know. Um, so anyway, that is, that is the, the horizontal, the lateral aspect of holiness. Is that he is separate. He is out of the realm of our understanding except that he has made himself understandable and made himself knowable to us so let's let's talk about the second dimension the sacred dimension going back to my beautiful graph ah beautiful so this the second piece the second dimension it's more of a, a vertical dimension and this one it's a little bit harder to put into words but i'm going to do my best here so it is a the a vertical dimension where the thing that is holy is is transcendent in a sense it is of of moral perfection, that it is better, it is the most good thing. Like when, when we come to church, for example, we, we talk about church as like, oh, this is a, a sacred space. Or, or when we go somewhere that is like, um, I don't know, that has a, a great importance to us in our own lives, like a place where there was a, a deep foundational memory or a 
powerful experience. There's something about that that is better than any other place, but not because we decided that it was going to be better, but because something better than us decided that it was better. Is this making sense? Like, it's, it's hard to wrap our heads around. Something is sacred because something greater has made it special. And so we say that church is special because church is where we come to, to hear about God and we worship him. And it's not because we decided that it's sacred, but rather because there is an aspect of God that we get to experience here that's different than the other places, if that makes sense. And there's something a little bit somber about that. It's a little bit, it holds more gravitas. And so when we talk about God being holy, not just in this separate dimension where he is different than us, but we also talk about him in this vertical dimension where he's transcendently better than us. That understanding of right and wrong that we have on the inside, he kind of takes that to the ultimate level where he is of infinitely greater worth than us. He is of ultimately higher moral character than us. He's not only different, but he is better he is absolutely perfect. He is absolutely moral. He's the, the, the standard from which that, the things that we call moral find their reference point. So he's, he's transcendently greater than anything else on the planet or that we can even imagine. There's nothing that is more glorious than him. I know I'm, I'm using these superlative terms to try to just like kind of throw out like, if we, we use these terms in comparison, but in reality, when we speak about God's holiness and that transcendental vertical dimension, what we mean is that he defines the standard for what is goodness, for what is moral excellence, for what is better than anything else. I'm, I'm reaching for these terms here, but there is something within us, I'm willing to bet, that every person in this room understands the concept of greater glories and greater beauties than ourselves. There's something in us that accepts that we are not the, the greatest thing in the universe, despite our best efforts. So the, the awe and the wonder we experience when we see the Grand Canyon, when we see a sunset over Yosemite, when we see a colossal thunderhead over the ocean, these are the fingerprints of a God who exudes glory and majesty and perfection. Our initial response to that isn't to point at it and start saying like, you know, I really wish that the river had done like more of a, a bigger U-shape, or I wish that Thunderhead was a little bit taller. Like we don't approach those things with an idea of criticism that there are flaws to find because it's less than what it could be. We look at it, we say, wow, that is something greater and more glorious than other things that I've seen before. And that concept of God's holiness is like that on steroids to the nth degree, to, to the highest exponent. We marvel at what those things are because what they are is more than we can even really comprehend. So that's the vertical dimension of holiness, right? So when we talk about God's, God's holiness, just recapping, he is separate, he is different than us. So we can't necessarily make a whole bunch of synonyms to understand who he is. We have to hear from him in order to fully understand him. But also, he is excellent. He is goodness embodied, if you will. And so when we put them together, we see a God who is totally unlike us in many ways and of moral perfection to an absolute standard. He is, he is not just a better version than us or like humanity 2.0. He is totally unique 
in absolute perfection. You don't get better than holy, right? Holiness is not something like, like uh, a comparative term where you can, where it exists on a gradient, where you can say that, oh, something is more holy than another thing. No, it's a binary. It is like you are either holy or you aren't. If you remember, like, back to, like, a graph, the, uh, the origin point there, that is the reference point by which every other point is judged. Every other point could be on a gradient of some sort, but that reference point, that holiness, is a, the fixed point. And that is what God decided is the most important thing for the Israelites to understand about him. There is only one ultimate standard, and there's no room for error with it. And so, as a result, God's holiness, there is a revealing aspect to it. If you were to say, okay, well, this thing over here is holy, well, now I can figure out how close I am to holy based off of it. If it is the fixed point, I can reference myself next to it. Have you ever gone hiking in the dark before with somebody that has like a headlamp that's brighter than a thousand suns? Have you ever, you ever been with that person, like you're out there with your flashlight and all of a sudden it just like, like just everything is lit up around you. Your own flashlight disappears. You ever notice that? Like your flashlight, your headlamp, it disappears as you shine it around because the brightness of their like power torch 7,000 magnum extra is so much brighter than whatever it is that you're trying to reveal. That's what God's holiness is kind of like. When we start to look around at the world, his holiness reveals everything that isn't holy. That his holiness encompasses and overpowers anything that we can look at and say, well, that's pretty good or that's not so good. No, his holiness comes in and shines on everything and becomes a rev- and, and reveals that which is not equally holy or bright. So imagine, and, and that, that revealing nature to God's holiness causes us to reflect. If we truly consider it, if we truly allow that fact to rest in our minds, then we are forced to reckon with ourselves in comparison. Imagine, for example, that you go to lunch with Usain Bolt or Lindsey Vaughn or um, LeBron James, all right? And you get to just like talk with them and pick their brain. Like what is a day in the life of LeBron James look like? It's probably pretty awesome. He's got lots of cars, lots of things, but what you'll hear And what's probably going to strike you is the amount of dedication that goes into the craft. You'll hear about the training regimens. You'll hear about the time spent at practice. You'll you'll hear about how many free throws he does every day. You'll um, you'll hear the 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 personal trainers that that just like absolutely thrash them into the best shape that is possible for a human being to be in. You'll hear about the the chefs that cook them special meals so that their body has all of the macronutrients and stuff to perform at such a high level. And when you're on your way home and you stop at the grocery store, that might stick with you a little bit when you're walking through the ice cream aisle, right? It's just like, oh, oh dang, well, you know, Michael Phelps hasn't eaten ice cream in 10 years and he has seven gold medals, huh? It kind of makes you think, right? Like you, you're, you're faced to, uh, with a comparison of someone that is just like achieving so much more than you and that sticks with, with you just a little bit and you might you know, make a couple different choices. You might you know, blow the dust off that gym membership for the first time in a few years because that comparison that you feel reveals where you kind of are willing to admit that you might be lacking in a couple areas. And that's, that's the revealing nature of God's holiness when it comes to considering it for ourselves. It's one thing to just say like, oh yeah, God is 
God is really holy, and that's, that's great, and that's great. What, is, what does that mean for me? Well, well, that means that anything that isn't holy pales in comparison. And that's, that is a small taste of what really is a natural response to holiness in its purest form, is that we, we start to consider where do we stand in relation. And so I want to uh, put up, if you will, Trevor, Isaiah 6, verse 1, and then verse 5. So Isaiah, in this passage, he sees God. He, he, it, gets rev- it gets revealed to him, the throne room of God in heaven, and he gets to see God. And this is what happens when he does. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And this is his response. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So that reaction to seeing God's holiness is immediately, instantaneously to realize, oh shoot, God is holy. That means that he is absolute moral perfection. That means that, that nothing that is imperfect can withstand his glory. There is, there, it, is, it is the binary of holiness that anything that isn't holy, that doesn't measure up, is not holy and can't even abide, can't even bear to be close to him. And then he looks at in himself and he realizes, woe is me. I am undone. That, that word undone, like think about, the, that's like Avengers when Thanos snaps and like they crumble to dust. It's, just, it's that, it's not just like, oh, I'm really sad. I'm really bummed out. It's like, no, I have been dissolved. My, the core of my being is torn to shreds because he is holy and because I am not. He sees true holiness and perfection his mind immediately goes to the comparison between the two, and he realizes, I'm not holy. And more so, not only am I unholy, but everyone around me. I live in a people that is unholy. We have unclean lips. We don't say the right things. We don't do the right things. Isaiah realizes that only absolute perfection can withstand being with God, being close to God, and he doesn't measure up. So God's holiness, is, it's like a blast furnace. It not only reveals the impurities, but it brings them to the surface, bubbling up for everything, for, to, to be on display for everyone to see. There's this quote that I love by C.S. Lewis that says this, If there were no light in the universe, we should never know it was dark. Dark itself would be without meaning. If there is no holiness, if there is no reference point, we would not have an understanding within ourselves that things are right and things are wrong. There's a fingerprint of a God who is morally just and perfect on our hearts that pricks our conscience every time we do something that we know is not the right thing. And we may question and try to explain where it comes from, but in order to fully understand and comprehend that fact, we have to understand who God is. And before we move on from this, I really want to highlight that this concept here of God's holiness is extremely crucial to understanding the Christian faith. So a lot of things about the Christian faith, like if you're not a follower of Christ, like if you're here and you're, you're kind of hearing this and trying to like kind of wrap your head around it with the rest of us here, this is something that's worth parking on, okay? And so if there's a little bit of pushback, if there's a little bit of like, huh, what? Like just, you know, tune me out for the rest of the sermon. That's totally fine. Park on this. Really understand and comprehend, like what does it mean that God is holy? 
really come to terms with that because it informs so much about our faith. It informs why Christ came. It informs why hell exists. It informs why judgment is coming at the end of the age. So much is, is, is going to be foundationally dependent upon this. And so I really ask, again, if this is, if this is like a struggle or if there's something in here that's just not, not quite over the hump there, that's chill. That's cool. Don't listen to the rest of the sermon. That's fine. Put in your earbuds. So, a pro- and, and if you are a Christian, and this is maybe the first time that you're hearing it like this, again, it is, really, it is so, so necessary to park on this and really, really understand this. And maybe your reaction is like, okay, this sounds boring. Like, who wants absolute perfection? That sounds like the dullest thing ever. Like, that's kind of the, the, the Hollywood trope, you know, from like the 60s and the 70s. Just like, oh, you cool Christian kids are so boring. I'm going to go off and do my own thing and live this wild life. Like, it's kind of like the trope that we hear a lot is like that perfection is boring and like a life that has some compromise in it could be exciting. And I'm here to tell you that in some ways, you're absolutely right. Sin is fun. Josh and I, we went out to dinner on Wednesday, and we were, we were saying all of these things that you wouldn't necessarily think that a pastor and his, his friend would be talking about, like the table behind Josh. Literally, I heard, I heard like the guy whisper, the conversation behind us is really interesting right now. Because we're saying stuff like, yeah, sin is really fun. Like, yeah, sin has a great payoff in the near term. And we were talking about, like, what, wh- how in the world do we communicate that, that a life of compromise and sin is, like, at the same time tempting and it's pleasurable and it's fun. And what we came up with is that sin isn't free, right? Like that life that draws us to just living exactly the way that we want to with no regard for people or God or morality around us, there's a cost associated with it that we don't often hear about and we don't often pay for it up front. There is an immediate payoff for sin that we get to do whatever we want and that sounds great. But if you've ever found yourself wanting the people in your life, if you've ever been disappointed by the people in your life, by the way that they've treated you, by the way that your boss talks to you, by the way that your parents raised you, by the way that your spouse would treat you sometimes, what you do is you find yourself wishing that they were maybe a little bit more holy. You find yourself wishing that there was kind of a standard by which the world could be judged right or wrong. We all kind of crave that at the same time that we want ourselves to be removed from that standard, all at the same time. It's, it's kind of that, that both and, that we want there to be rightness and goodness in the world, and yet we want to somehow be excluded from the consequences of there being rightness and goodness in the world because we probably won't make that cut. So that's, th- those, are, those are things, again, that it's kind of, kind of a jumble right now toward, toward the end here. But that's, that's what I want you to, to be thinking about. If the idea of this, this holiness of God, that there exists an absolute standard, park on that. Just let that, let that sit. Let that mellow. But what I want to finish with is, how does God's holiness defeat the lullaby? That's what I promised, right? You're still waiting for those six easy steps, all right? So how does God's holiness defeat the lullaby? This idea that somehow God's holiness and understanding that can defeat this temptation into complacency and carelessness and compromise. Well, this is not really an original creation, but uh, Trevor, if you want to put up what I'm calling the cycle of redemption. So these are the six easy steps, and I use bullet points instead of numbers, but there's six there, I promise. 
All right, so this right here, I don't want to walk through it too slowly, but I'll just read it really quick. So first, recognize God's holiness. Understand that he is holy. And then understand that in comparison, if we are to be close to God, if we are to be with him, that we must be holy also. And then, in the revealing light of God's holiness, see our own sinful and wayward heart. And then, the response to that is turn to Christ in repentance. Say, I'm sorry, I am not the person that I should be. Receive his atoning blood that forgives and cleanses our sin and walk in newness of life. So those six steps there, the, the cycle of redemption, that is what happens when, someone, when you trust in Christ for the first time. You say, God, you're holy, I'm not, I have sinned, you are sinless. My sin needs to be taken away, I can't take it away by myself. But you offered Christ as a substitute so that I could, he would take my sin upon himself and I could be made righteous and holy according to you. That is the salvation process, all right? And if you're a Christian, this is also the process of four-syllable Christian words starting with an S, sanctification. Big old church word right there, sanctification. If you've ever heard that word, it's basically the process of being made holy. Because remember, the response to God's holiness is, I'm holy, therefore you have to be holy too. Well, shoot, we're all messed up. How are we going to get there on our own? He gives us a path through it. He gives us a path to holiness. And there is salvation where he says, your sins have been placed on Christ, and now they are wiped out. And in my eyes, I see you as if I see Christ. You are fully sinless and flawless in my sight. And now I will take you through life and I will convict you and my Holy Spirit will dwell in you. And this process repeats in the sanctification process where we see our sin in the light of God's holiness and we come to him in repentance when we receive forgiveness and we walk in newness of life. So this is not only the, the salvation process, but is the sanctification process by which he makes us holy. So every person in this room, I guarantee you, has experienced the feeling of guilt, of knowing that there's something wrong in, on the inside of us that can't be fixed by our own actions. And that's because we were created and made to be with a holy God. We were created to be with, to be sinless perfection. <clears throat> and so when God says, I am holy and therefore you need to be holy too, what he's doing is he is not only revealing the fact that there is a distance between us, but also he is saying, I am holy. You have to be holy too. He's pointing us to the very first step in the process. Understand Israel. Understand Christian that I am holy. And then from there, March through and recognize your sin in the light of my holiness and confess that sin that you are not holy and then receive Christ's blood that makes you holy. And I will be the first to tell you that when you turn your life to Christ, you don't become instantaneously perfect. I know, it's a big bummer. It's, there's some sticker shock with some people, unfortunately. And I'll be the first to confess that every single day, I still struggle with sin. I still struggle with this lullaby that wants to pull me into a life of complacency and compromise towards Christ, towards a world that wants nothing to do with God and instead offers forth all sorts of other solutions for the desires that are within me. I'll be the first to tell you that. Like, the fact that I'm a Christian and that I believe in God doesn't change that fact. But what I can tell you that is good news, the, like part of the good news of the gospel, is that when you accept Christ's sacrifice for your sin, 
he makes you holy in the sense that you are now made right with him. Like legally speaking, he blots out your sin. Your record is wiped clean. And so legally, you are now just as much a child of God as if you'd never sinned in the first place. That just like when, when a, a child is adopted into a new family, that what happens according to the law is in an instant, their name is changed, and who was once a stranger to that family becomes in an instant a part of that family, legally speaking. And that happens when you accept Christ in an instant. And then over time, he comes alongside of us. He gives us the Holy Spirit that indwells us and empowers us to understand our sin in the light of his holiness. And he begins to conform us over time, slowly, in a process that doesn't make sense sometimes and is hard and arduous and a lifelong. But he begins to transform us into the person that he sees us as legally as soon as we are saved. Does that make sense? It's kind of a both and. It's like you are made holy upon salvation and you are being made holy as he sanctifies you. But it's all through this, this process. It starts with understanding that God is holy. If you don't understand that God is holy, none of the rest will make any sense. If you don't understand who God is, that he is holy, then the lullaby will tempt you away from him by subtracting elements of his character and causing you to stumble into complacency and compromising how you, how you ought to live. So it all starts with God's holiness and it ends with us being made holy into who he created us to be in the first place. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that cool? It's like all at the same time. It's like two electrons sharing the same space. Call back. <laughs> so that's where I want to end us this morning. All right, so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song and then we will let you get out of here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this church. I thank you for um, the leaders here, that, um, for Josh and Christy. Thank you for their, their marriage and uh, for the love that they have for each other and for you. I pray that you'd be with them as they're uh, enjoying uh, some time away. I pray that you keep them safe. Uh, Father, I pray for, for this church, for this congregation. I pray that you would impress upon us what your holiness means, that we would come to a, an understanding that isn't just intellectual, where we, can, where we can put words into a good dictionary definition of what your holiness means, but rather that it would penetrate our hearts and that it would reveal to us where we are lacking, that it would reveal to us where we are not holy. And Father, I pray that your spirit would work in us, that it would prompt us to repentance. Father, for those that are near to you, for those that are far off from you, Father, that you would bring us towards repentance. I just pray that you would bless, this, bless, bless these people, be with them throughout their day and throughout their week. Uh, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.